about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. My name's Roger. I'm one of the ministers here. Great to be with you this evening. And if you haven't met me, please make sure you introduce yourself afterwards. I'd love to catch up with you as well. Well, this is Palm Sunday. You've noticed the palms as you've walked in. And what's intriguing about Palm Sunday, or at least uh, the passages about Palm Sunday, is they appear uh, in each of the Gospels. And it seems like it's a fairly insignificant event in some ways. And yet, uh, it's repeated in each of the Gospels. And so, Basically, what takes place is Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he gets on a donkey, and people are excited. But actually, there's much more to it, of course. And so this evening, what I want to do is kind of take you on the journey uh, with Jesus and to think about uh, what is actually taking place as we look at Jesus coming into Jerusalem um, towards the time that he's going to be crucified. Now, as we come to the, the, um, the scene here with the crowds gathering, I wonder if you can imagine, um, you know that scene in Forrest Gump uh, where everyone's coming together at uh, the Washington, D.C. reflecting pool? Um, they're all gathering and uh, he runs into the pool and meets Jenny and it's kind of wild applause and all that kind of thing. Do you remember that scene? Do you remember that scene? Yeah, it's, it's a, a huge scene. So I don't want to compare Jesus with Forrest Gump, but... It kind of is this idea of gathering together lots of people who are extremely excited. And that's what we have a picture of here. People who are coming together who are extremely excited um, and Jesus is the central figure in this excitement. Now what's interesting is the kinds of people that are coming to gather together um, in Jerusalem. They're coming together because of the Passover, and we see that that uh, happens in verse 12. They're gathering uh, from all around Israel to come into the Passover in the middle of Jerusalem. And having been in Jerusalem, uh, it would have been extremely crowded in the narrow streets there. Uh, They think about 100,000 people turned up and just swelled the whole city beyond uh, what what it could uh, contain. Interestingly enough, there are people who are coming for the Passover, but in the context, we also see that there are people who are probably coming to see Jesus uh, because of his healing of Lazarus, uh, which has just taken place, and because they've heard of Jesus' reputation for healing. Uh, In particular, there's a group of people who you might not expect to be there in verse 20. There were Greeks who went up to worship at the festival, and they come to Philip, Um, And they request, sir, we would like to see Jesus. And so, yes, while there are people gathering for the Passover, there are also particular people who are coming to the Passover, but they want to see Jesus. Now, as they refer to the Greeks here, I think what they're referring to is people who are non-Jewish. And it's interesting to think about those who are coming to see Jesus because they're coming from everywhere. And what we understand is that Jesus has become extremely popular. His reputation has gone well beyond just the confines of his little uh, towns that he's visited. And we see that particularly in the commentary of the Pharisees in verse 19. 
So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now it's kind of ironic because the Pharisees are against Jesus, but John has been talking about throughout the whole gospel that Jesus has come to save the world. And in their very mouths, they're uttering the words, Jesus has come, it's getting us nowhere. The whole world has gone after him. And so it's a beautiful scene of people coming to see who Jesus is. And it reminds us that John is pointing us to the fact that Jesus is part of God's unfolding plan. That way back in the covenant, uh, that Abraham had been promised that all nations would be included. And then as we've seen the Old Testament unfold, a great king would come who would rule over all peoples and all nations. So that's the scene as we come to this passage. Now as we also come to this scene, we notice that there are lots of people who are taking palm branches and meeting him. Um, typically these palm branches are probably date palm branches um, and actually they're a Jewish nationalist symbol. We know this in part because uh, they find these palm branches um, on coins that were minted by insurrectionists. So it's quite possible as they are waving these palms, uh, what's in the minds of the people who are waving these palms is here comes the king who is going to give us back Israel. They're thinking insurrection. They're thinking the Romans will be done away with. Here is our king. He will bring back our nation state. And they, have, of course, have been longing for their nation state to come again and for their king to arrive. And it's actually quite sad to see, um, the, even in this day, that that is still the case. Uh, having visited the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, uh, people there just praying and praying and praying and rocking to pray that the Messiah would come, that the King would come, that their nation might be restored. And so you imagine this crowd is fully uh, is excited about what is taking place, expecting that Jesus is coming to rule them and to, to free them from Roman oppression. And you see this further in verse 13 with the words that they are shouting out. They begin, Hosanna. Now, there's something really interesting about this word. Um, you, you might remember, I, maybe it's just been part of your life, but I remember the time when sick changed its meaning. You know how sick just means unwell? Well, then it became fully sick. Now, I blame the Shire. I don't know whether that's actually true or not, but I feel like it was happening there at the time. Now, the truth is the word still means sick and unwell, and fully sick means something really good. And that's kind of what's happened with the word Hosanna here. Because the word Hosanna uh, is found in Psalm 118, And it means, save me, please. It's a bit like, you know, going to the beach and you're out swimming and you find yourself out of depth and you wave your hand and you start shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, of course, the guards won't come at that point, but it's the idea of save me, save me. What follows, though, straight after in that psalm is blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so over the centuries, what had developed is this cry for save me had also become associated with the idea of 
our salvation is here. And so as they're shouting Hosanna, they're saying, save me, but our salvation is here. And you see that um, in the words that uh, um, they are shouting. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then particularly significantly, blessed is the king of Israel. We need saving. Here is our saviour. Here is our king who has come to rescue us. And so the crowd is just full of expectation and excitement that this Jesus would come and he would be the king that would rescue them. Now, clearly, uh, the disciples and most people don't really understand what's going on. In verse 16, we understand, um, John tells us the disciples had no clue as to what was unfolding before their eyes. It was only after Jesus, was, uh, Jesus died and was resurrected that they started to put the pieces together. What's interesting, though, is to see Jesus' response to this acclamation. At first, I think he heightens the moment. Did you notice? He's riding a donkey. Now, as we look at other accounts of this same event in Luke chapter 19, Jesus actually orchestrates it, so he is riding the donkey. He says, you'll find a colt there. It's never been ridden. Go and untie it. Bring it to me. And if they ask questions, just tell them that the Lord asked you to bring it. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem, not riding a, riding a steed that would signify somehow a king who was victorious, but a donkey. But for those who are observing, they would have understood what Jesus was doing. See verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion, See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey colt. Jesus actually heightens their expectations by fulfilling a prophecy that they would have known about the king who is to come. And so you can imagine the fervor for which, with which people are shouting, Hosanna! Our saving moment is here. But just at that moment, at the height of everything, John tells us that he subverts their expectations. He subverts their paradigms of power. He subverts their hopes. Now, initially, we hear this as Jesus responds to the Greeks who have come in verse 23, where he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of the wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, of course, that would have been completely confusing to the crowds who are gathering together. Here is this man riding on a colt to be the king. And all of a sudden, he's talking about a seed being plant, planted, a kernel of wheat being planted in the ground. And what Jesus, of course, is doing, as we find, is he's referring to his own death. And he says, the only way that I'm going to have power in this situation is if I die. And as I die, there will be much fruit. 
there can't be much fruit without me dying. If I leave the road now and fulfill your expectations, if I become the king that you won't, you want, then there's no hope. Because the only way that this will be fulfilled is if I die. That's the only way I will be glorified. That's the only way in which there will be much fruit. It's just so unexpected. So subversive to the power paradigms of the day, of actually any day. And at the same time, it's beautiful. Because it says, as one commentator has put it, that Jesus' death and resurrection means everything sad is going to become untrue and will somehow be greater for having been, been, once been broken and lost. Let me say that again. That Jesus' death and resurrection means that everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. It's a beautiful picture of new life in the midst of death. Now, the extraordinary thing that happens next is that Jesus will not leave us just watching him go to his death. He doesn't leave us as observers of this scene. He invites us into the scene, into the journey. Because what he says next is this. Having said that he will die and be raised again, having said he will be like a seed that's planted and then produces many seeds, in verse 25 he says this, and anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am my servant will also be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Jesus invites us at this point into the story, into the journey that he is making. And two things become unmistakably clear. One is that it's very hard. And the other is that it's beautiful and magnificent and glorious. What are the hard things in these verses? In verse 24, if we follow Jesus, we're called to die to ourselves. Unless the, wheat, unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies. That's hard. That idea of dying to ourselves. Jesus continues in verse 25. He who loves his life must lose it. This is hard. We have to, we're called to hate our lives in this world. In verse, following in verse 26, he goes on to say, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And the implication is even unto death. And then finally in verse 26, he says, if anyone follows me, you will be called to serve me, to be my waiter, to do my bidding, no matter what the demand, no matter how lowly your status. And of course, those statements are extraordinarily hard. 
It's what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus knows actually that it's going to be really difficult and really hard. In Matthew chapter 7 we read, The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And why? Well, it's hard to die. It's hard to hate your life in this world. It's hard to follow Jesus on the road that leads to the cross. It's hard to take the role of a servant in a world so obsessed with power. Now, I want to suggest to you that we have some particularly difficult challenges in this world at the moment. The particular challenge we have of dying to ourselves is that we live in an age of self-love. Up until the 20th century, many cultures believed that a high view of yourself was the reason for all the things that went wrong, the reason for the violence, the reason that people stole, stole things, that people lied. But in this century, in our modern Western culture, we've developed the opposite view. And the cultural consensus these days is that our, the reason we lie and steal and cheat is because of our low self-esteem, our low view of ourselves. And so we need to improve our view of ourselves if things are going to get better. And we should avoid all, morality, all things that are to do with harm, all things that are to do with suffering and mistreatment and cruelty. And of course, there's great truth in all those things. But there's also a misunderstanding of what it means to sacrifice oneself, to put behind yourself your desires, to crucify yourself and to let Jesus be the person you serve not yourself. Now we see this in all kinds of different places. You see it in selfies. I remember sitting at, a, at, a, um, at the art gallery uh, recently and two women who came along were just having afternoon tea and they spent 15 minutes taking photos of, of themselves. Um, and each time they got it wrong. You know, I haven't quite got myself in this picture right. And then of course you know that they were going to Photoshop those those pictures and, and put them on Instagram and all of a sudden their self-esteem would be better. Uh, maybe not. Madonna puts it this way. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That's what's pushing me. I push past one spell of it and I discover myself as a special human being. Then I feel I'm mediocre and uninteresting so I have to do something else. And because even though I've been someone, I need to prove myself that I am somebody and my struggle has never ended and I guess it never will. It seems crazy. I've got to promote myself to be myself. I've got to improve my self-esteem. And yet this is not what God is calling us to. It's not to embrace ourselves, it's to embrace Jesus to embrace the path of suffering and obedience, to lose our lives, to let go of ourselves, to let go of our expectations, to trust God in our lives, to let him play out our story in his story, not our own story. 
And so the centre of our lives, we are called to worship God. To put Jesus at the centre of all we do. To look to him, not to ourselves. Now, of course, there's things that are true about uh, the things I've mentioned. But I think we become so self-absorbed that we forget to look to Jesus and forget to follow him and forget that actually it's going to involve suffering and obedience that we're going to need to lose our life and let go of our expectations. Now that's hard. And I get that it's hard. You and I experience that as being hard and difficult. And that's why it's so wonderful to also see within the passage there's great hope. There's great hope for following Jesus. In verse 24, we are reminded that a seed that is planted and dies will also bear much fruit. we find ourselves in Christ, we will find true meaning and bear true fruit. Fruit that is not affected by death. Fruit that is actually eternal. And in fact, of course, that's what Jesus goes on to say. Yes, if we love our life, we will lose it. Yes, we must hate our life. But he who hates his life shall keep it to eternal life. And so the promise, the hope is not just here, but for the future, for eternal life. Now, Jesus is not saying here that somehow you have to earn that. In fact, what he's doing in his death and the cross is reaching out to us and doing for us those things which we cannot do for ourselves. And he's asking us to enfold ourselves into his life. To serve in the way that he served. To be strengthened by the way he does things. And so in verse 26 we see, Whoever serves me must follow me, and, and where I am my servant will be also. Now I think in the particular context he's talking about the idea of following him unto death. But I like to think that Jesus is also saying, Wherever those who are serving me are, I will also be with you even when it feels like dying because I have gone before you. I will be with you. You are my servant. That's who you are. And the beautiful thing he says in verse 26 as he closes here, he says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honour them. You see, the thing about trying to get self-esteem for yourself is you're trying to get honour for yourself. You're trying to grab it for yourself. But the true meaning in life comes when the Father honours you. Honours you in his reaching out to you in the death of his son. Honours you in the, in, the, in the sense that he's called you his servant. Honours you in that he calls you to give up your life and to serve him. Don't miss out. Don't miss this beautiful, glorious, wonderful joy that Jesus can give us in the midst of all kinds of a hard life. We die, we hate our lives in this world, we follow Jesus on the Calvary Road, we become his servants. But when we do that, we find we bear much fruit 
We keep our lives for lives eternal. We join Jesus in his glory and the Father honours us. It's not easy. And we have one who's gone before it, who's done it for us, who we are in. So he gives us the strength and the ability to do that. It's not easy, but it's glorious and it's magnificent and it's beautiful. And it means that everything sad is going to come untrue and somehow be greater for once having been broken and lost. Can I invite you to take that Palm Sunday journey and follow Jesus into that great hope that he has provided. Don't be sucked in by the other things. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and daily follow him. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.